Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If I might have your attention, please. My name is uh, Tom Palmer. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, the executive vice president for international programs at the Atlas Network and director of Cato University, in which last capacity, it's my great and signal pleasure to welcome you to this 2013 Cato University summer program. It's also a special pleasure uh, to welcome you to the second Cato University held in this gorgeous Temple of Liberty, the Cato Institute headquarters. We're very, very proud of this building. We have uh, lots of space here to put on big events. We have a, a professional television and radio recording and broadcasting studios two fabulous auditoriums, or auditoria, if I wanted to be picky, uh, that are packed with uh, high-tech equipment for recording, uh, broadcasting, and more. And they are equipped with top-notch Thiel audio speakers, uh, thanks to our good friends, uh, Kathy Gornick and uh, the late Jim Thiel, both of whom were Cato University graduates who complained about the bad sound quality at Cato, <laughs> and because they are in the audio business, uh, they brought in their engineers and equipped us properly uh, at their own expense. Uh, we also have the beautiful Liberty Garden uh, up top, which was established by Ken and Freda Levy, who are also uh, Cato Institute donors. And they were grateful that they met and fall in love, fell in love at a Cato Institute event. And so they... Um, who knows what may happen here? at this event. Uh, but that gives us also the opportunity for our very efficient and competent colleagues and our conference staff to save money for the Institute because we can cater events here and we're not hostage to hotels having to pay the high hotel bills. Now Cato University is a very important part of the Institute's approach to public policy. Cato uh, produces a coherent, systematic, and thorough output of objective analysis of existing policies, examination of the incentives, good or bad, that are established by those policies, scholarly research, public commentary through blogs, op-eds, and newspapers and magazines, public speeches, television and radio, appearances, interviews and debates, detailed and concrete proposals for reform, quite frequently called abolition, of existing policies, amicus curiae briefs before the Supreme Court of the United States and congressional testimony. You can learn all about it at www.cato.org, as well as the multiple more focused websites that Cato maintains, such as downsizinggovernment.org and policemisconduct.net. But that's not really enough. Analysis, opinions, and proposals have to be rooted in some principles. I'm just talking with Jeff Myron, who's going to be addressing you tomorrow morning, about the myth that people just do objective research on policy, and that's it, as though they don't have agendas. We do have an agenda at the Cato Institute. We do have principles, and we think it's very important to put them out on the table. I was at a conference of Fulbright scholars many years ago, and a uh, representative from another think tank, I won't mention, but started with a B, uh, was there, and she started by saying, well, unlike the Cato Institute, uh, we just produce objective social science and public policy research. And I responded by saying how charming it was such a a lovely and charming act of self-deception in public, uh, but she really uh, should pay attention to what she said. Everybody has principles and agenda, and it's our view that you can do more serious, more honest, more objective research when you acknowledge what your agenda is. You're more likely to ask yourself the hard questions of saying, am I just repeating what I expect to be true? You're alert to the problem of what's called confirmation bias, which is systemic in human life. But if you deny that you have any agenda, you will fall victim to confirmation bias every time. So what we do is to try to connect our policies to our principles. Put the principles out on the table, 
be honest and open about them, what we believe in. We believe in individual liberty. We believe in personal responsibility. We believe in limited government. We believe in peace. And we believe in the right of justly acquired property and free exchange. And by putting those out, being willing to defend them, we also connect them to the public policy research that we do and try to keep ourselves honest, objective, and straightforward in all of our programs and policies. To advance those principles is why Cato was established. And indeed, two years ago, a very cool program called libertarianism.org, which I also encourage you to visit and exploit. It's got a lot of outstanding libertarian resources, commentary material you won't find anyplace else in the universe. And it's also why we organized Cato University, to explore these principles. Now, to understand what that's about, we have to revisit how and why the Cato Institute was founded. So you have to go way, way, way back in time to the 1970s, right? A long time ago. I remember reading about the 1970s in my high school history books. But back then, the idea of limited government was considered wacky, kooky, really off the wall. I mean, who would favor both allowing people to keep what they earn and allowing them to determine what they would eat, smoke, or read? I mean, how crazy is that, really? That's just crazy to think people should be able to run their own business and choose whether they're going to smoke pot. That can't be right. Well, a group of academics and business people decided that there needed to be a voice for liberty, a consistent and principled voice for liberty that would do the hard work of making that case in the public sphere, examining how the world really works rather than simply listening to the fantasies promoted by statists of all sorts of a government that's all wise, all knowing, and all benevolent. We thought it would be useful to talk about the government we really have. And it isn't all wise, all knowing, and always benevolent. Indeed, I'm reminded of a comment, I'll talk a bit more, more about this in a moment, by one of our good friends, uh, Fred Smith of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He says, you know, the Constitution of the United States of America is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a perfect document. But it's a lot better than what we have now. The Cato Institute was founded in 1977 with a very clear mission, which was recently reformulated after much thought and discussion into a very short and compact version. The mission of the Cato Institute is to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now the name of the Cato Institute deserves just a moment's discussion and a brief explanation. Uh, it is not the Central Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, some people have thought. Uh, the one of the, the founding president of the Institute, Ed Crane, insisted it stood for Crane and the others. Uh, but in fact, uh, the name Cato refers indirectly to the Roman statesman Cato the Younger, who died at his own hand in the year 46 BC in Utica in North Africa. He was the last great defender of the old republic. He was famous for his insistence on the rule of law, on the constitution, and on the great dangers of centralization of power in one set of hands. He opposed the ambitions the total power of both Caesar and Pompey, the two great figures vying for total control and uh, uh, who ultimately ruined the Republic. The historian Plutarch wrote his very powerful life of Cato the Younger. He concluded it, he was the only free and only undefeated man. That's a powerful statement about this defender of the old Republic. So is the Cato Institute named after Cato the Younger? Well, not quite. It's actually named after his legacy. Specifically, the Cato who was presented to European audiences by the English writer Joseph Addison in 1713, when his play Cato, a Tragedy, 
was performed to great acclaim in London. It was translated into numerous languages and performed all over Europe as well as the colonies of North America. It was the big sensation on the theater at the time. So imagine cats and all kinds of fabulous, the Lion King and so on, all rolled up into one. It was the big uh, theatrical performance. It was a favorite of George Washington, who considered it his favorite, his play. He had it performed before the beleaguered American soldiers at Valley Forge in 1778 during that terrible, terrible winter. So here they were starving and sick in the cold, dressed up in bedsheets and togas, and performing this play, Cato. <clears throat> he did so to rally the spirit of his soldiers to fight on regardless of the odds. In the play, Cato's son states on the first act, "'Tis not in mortals to command success, but will do more, Sempronius, will deserve it." Washington was determined that American independence would deserve victory would be victorious, but would also deserve it. Many years before, at the age of 26, when he was fighting during the French and Indian Wars, he wrote home in a letter to his family, I should think my time more agreeably spent, believe me, in playing a part in Cato. And he almost did, except he played the part of Cincinnatus, the famous Roman general who was given the power of dictatorship to save the Republic and at the end resigned and went back to being a farmer. And of course, Washington famously resigned twice, having had really the option of turning into a dictator had he wanted that. It would have been open to him. Many of the most memorable phrases of the American Revolution and the War for Independence were cribbed from, or at least inspired by, Addison's play, including Patrick Henry's famous lines from his speech of March 23, 1775, at the St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. It was an echo of the line in which Cato, in the play, says to the young Prince Juba, remember the hand of fate is over us and heaven exacts severity from all our thoughts. It is not now a time to talk of aught but chains or conquest, liberty or death. And the audience would have recognized when Patrick Henry uttered those famous words that he was alluding to the story of Cato. But there's still one more step between Cato the Younger and the Cato Institute. And that was the great inspiration given by the play Cato to two radical writers in London, John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, who wrote a series of articles in the newspapers under the name Cato. It was very common at the time to uh, use a, a pseudonym or nom de plume. Between November of 1720 and December of 1723, they wrote 144 articles under that name. And they offered popular explanations and applications of the Whig, as they were called at the time, or we might say proto-libertarian, early libertarian ideas associated with John Locke and Algernon Sidney. Those essays were collected together and published in book form as Cato's Letters, and they were republished in the American colonies as well. They were extremely important in the political education of those who were to formulate the principles of the American Revolution and the fight for an independent American Republic. The great historian of the American founding, Bernard Balin, in a very, very good book, highly readable, by the way, it's a short and extremely uh, important book, The Origins of American Politics, said, and I quote, so influential was Cato's letters in the colonies, so packed with ideological meaning, that reinforced by Addison's universally popular play, Cato, and the colonists' selective, selectively Whiggish reading of the Roman historians, it gave rise to what might be called a catonic image personifying the whole of opposition thought, in which the career of the half-mythological Roman and the words of the two London journalists merge indistinguishably, indistinguishably. And so you read in letters and documents from the time, people will say, as Cato has argued, and it's not clear 
Cato the Younger, Cato from the play, or Cato's letters. But there was an image of what Cato represented, the idea of a republic of laws, rather than subjection to arbitrary power. Those principles that were identified with Cato were written into the Declaration of Independence, into the various state constitutions, into the Articles of Confederation, and into the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So the Cato Institute was inspired by the Cato of Cato's letters because the Contemporary Institute both explains these ideas in language that normal educated people can understand and applies them to the issues of our day, contemporary topics, just as the authors did Trenchard and Gordon during the 18th century. So Cato's work is not merely to produce research or to promote policy improvements or good government. We're in favor of all those things but also to connect them to our core principles and to help to disseminate those principles more widely throughout the population. Now, there's one thing that distinguishes Cato scholars and thinkers, and it's a question that they frequently ask. It is not a popular question in Washington, D.C. I can tell you, I've asked this question. It's considered rude, out of place, undignified, and course. One does not ask it at a cocktail reception or if you are invited to dinner. The question is, is the existing or proposed power that you support authorized in the legal documents that found this republic? Universally, you will find people wrinkling their noses in disgust that you would dare to ask that question. Is the exercise of this power authorized in the Constitution. The usual response was to actually laugh at this when they were not disgusted by the idea that there were any limits at all to the exercise of power. However, last year, five members of the Supreme Court actually took that question seriously for the first time in over a hundred years in the jurisprudence at that level. They found that the Commerce Clause imposed at least some restrictions on the federal government. Amazing. That was a rather puzzling victory. We won on a very key and important principle, which we hope will establish precedent. But Justice Roberts, swing vote, found that the Obamacare mandate was justifiable as an exercise of the power to tax, but not as an exercise of the commerce power. So it was an empty victory in some ways, but it was important for the long term, and it will be significant for future cases coming before the courts. That was considered utterly crazy just a few years ago, but it was scholars of the Cato Institute who put this issue on the agenda, and through articles and research and law reviews over and over, brought it to the highest court in the land. Now, Cato, we believe that words have meaning, and those meanings are just whatever we happen to want them to mean. We reject the doctrine of a living constitution, something that changes its shape like some big amoeba that sends out pseudopods whenever it's hungry for power to absorb some area of society and colonize it. Thomas Sowell put it very neatly. He said, when you find out that your constitution is living, that's when you discover it's dead. <laughs> a living constitution is in fact dead. James Harrington put it very neatly in 1656, quote, seeing they that make the laws and commonwealths are but men, the main question seems to be how a commonwealth comes to be an empire of laws and not of men. And that is indeed the fundamental question of limited government and constitutionalism. Thomas Jefferson hammered this home in 1798 during the famous Kentucky Resolutions. It would be a dangerous delusion where a confidence in the men of our choice to silence our fears for the safety of our rights. And by the way, how contemporary this sounds today. We're told, oh, come on, you elected these people. How could you possibly distrust them now? This is a constant refrain. They were democratically elected. How dare you question their assertions of power? J. 
Jefferson continued, confidence is everywhere the parent of despotism. Free government is founded in jealousy and not in confidence. It is jealousy and not confidence which prescribes limited constitutions to bind down those whom we are obliged to trust with power. Our Constitution has accordingly fixed the limits to which and no further our confidence may, goes, may go. In questions of power then, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. Those are by the words, the way words that almost no politician likes to hear, that there are limits to what they would like to achieve. Now the American constitutional order, according to the clear meaning of the laws that authorize it, is an order of strictly limited government. All of you will receive one of these little documents. I always travel with two, one for myself and one for the poor person on the plane next to me. <laughs> and one of the most delightful things you can do, especially in Washington, is when someone says, well, that's clearly constitutional. The Constitution says X and Y and Z. You'd be amazed at what members of Congress think the Constitution says. And you can bring it out and say, really? Would you show me? I have a copy right here. It's, it's very short. Would you show me where this power is mentioned? It's in one of the clauses I missed. Well, this in the Declaration clearly talks about limited government. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these, the language is very precise, not these are, among means you have more than the ones we list. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, now notice the language, very careful language, not to create, endow, or grant, to secure. You only secure what is already yours. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now notice powers is plural. It doesn't say power. I hear it misquoted all the time. Government, according to the Declaration, derives power from the consent of the governed. And again, you can really ruin the cocktail party by saying, really? It doesn't say that. It says powers, which suggests maybe some powers are derived and perhaps others are not. And then it's limited, only just powers, which tells us some powers are unjust. And if unjust, cannot be derived from the consent of the governed. This is a clear statement of limited governmental authority. And then in the Constitution of the United States, as it says in Article 1, Section 1, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. Herein granted. That tells you there are other powers conceivable that are not granted herein, but only the ones herein granted. And then Article 1, Section 8, lays out what those powers will be. Congress shall have the power to, and it lists things. These are enumerated powers. And then to make it as clear as they possibly could, the Bill of Rights, and the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, they wrote the following language. Amendment number nine. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. You have more rights than they could possibly list. The right to decide when to get up in the morning, what to wear, you can't make a list of all the rights you have. You can make a list of powers. So we have unenumerated rights, they're infinite, and the government has only enumerated powers, which they made very clear in the 10th Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, and some powers are explicitly prohibited to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. I cannot imagine a more clear statement. If it's not on the list, you don't have the power. And yet, consistently, not only are these ignored, but if you bring them up, you will ruin the dinner party in Washington, D.C. Now, past Cato University programs have focused on particular issues, the foundations of the American Republic, the economics of free markets, uh, and 
interventionism, the rhetoric or means of persuasion of liberty, and so on. This one is very general. It's a general intensive immersion in the ideas of liberty. And unfortunately, liberty has been on the defense for some years. I'm normally an optimistic person, but this has been a pretty bad 10 years, or thereabouts, certainly in the United States. Um, as some of the things have gotten more and more dire, we've seen a lot more active effort to defend the principles of limited government as a consequence. And our movement has been energized by a number of developments. You could imagine some of the, the anger of taxpayer groups, the very gratifying support for at least relaxing our crazy uh, drug laws and allowing people to purchase plants uh, for their personal consumption, uh, and so on. And one thing that's been personally very important to me and has given me more hope for the future, and that's the growth of a group of which I'm an advisor and a financial sponsor called Students for Liberty. I think there's probably a few members here among the students. It's a great organization. I spoke at their uh, conference last week of their campus organizers, 160 or so students from around the United States. Fantastic organization. I spoke at their group in Europe. They had uh, 360 stu European students in Belgium and it's growing all over the world. And this is one reason it's given me uh, so much hope for the future. So in fact, this is a really exciting time to be an advocate of liberty. Last month, a headline in the Washington Post, that's the, the company newspaper for Washington, D.C. The headline said, libertarianism is hot, exclamation point. That's a good thing to put on your resume. Uh, just the other day, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's opined, quote, this strain of libertarianism, that sounds like a really scary virus or <laughs> something, this strain of libertarianism, I've already seen on the internet people with, with uh, pictures of bacteria on their t-shirts saying strain of libertarianism, this strain of libertarianism, libertarianism that's going through both parties right now and making big headlines, I think, is a very dangerous thought. Well, dangerous to whom and to what, is what I wonder. To whom is this thought so dangerous? Now, we have indeed won some victories in recent years, so I don't want to portray it as all bad by any means, and some of them have been uh, very, very gratifying. At the same time, we've seen over the past 10 years the megastate in the United States has become more and more bloated, puffing up, with power, money, more and more powerful, and indeed, I think, more and more dangerous. The big growth of big government conservatism that we owe uh, George II, George W. Bush, uh, for that. Gigantic new welfare state programs brought in under the name of compassionate conservatism with trillions and trillions of dollars in unfunded liabilities and no concern with how these would be pay for, paid for. Uh, the reckless and uninformed decisions to bumble into unnecessary foreign wars that have had huge consequences for Americans, touch our lives in so many ways, national security policy, trade policy, the additional burdens on the federal budget, and, of course, the horrifying destruction of human life that it brought about. The implosion of our financial system, thanks to years of deliberate interventions into banking and housing markets, policies designed to lower lending standards, and then, after the House of Cards collapsed, gigantic bailouts, subsidy after subsidy after subsidy, too big to fail. And we have created a big incentive, get big enough that you're too big to fail, and you're guaranteed to be bailed out. So what we have now is a system increasingly of private profits, if you take risks and do well, and public losses. If it goes belly up, the taxpayers will take care of it. What's to worry? We've launched wars abroad that have drained hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of our wealth from our taxpayers, resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths. Our government is steadily intervene, intervening and increasing its intervention abroad in Africa, for example. How many people knew there's an entire U.S. military command, AFRICOM, dedicated to Africa and increasing U.S. military involvement uh, throughout Africa, and so much talk of us getting stuck in the quagmire of Syria in the middle of a horrific civil war in a very dangerous part of the world. We witnessed the growth of the surveillance state 
which watches us more and more through closed circuit televisions, face identification technology, and so on. Our emails and phone calls are monitored en masse in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, the issuance of the first time in American history of general warrants, unspecified general warrants. Give us everything you have. This is clearly unconstitutional. We've seen the re-energization of, re of the nanny state, forbidding the smoking of tobacco. Under a series of presidents, of course, who smoked pot, one forgot to inhale. <laughs> one of them has publicly admitted to having done cocaine, for which had he been caught by his own administration and prosecuted by his own prosecutors and punished under the laws he supports, he would still be in prison. Would that have been better for him? Maybe for the country, one could argue, <laughs> but certainly not for him. So we have a president who is ramping up the war on drugs and throwing thousands and thousands of people in prisons and filling our prisons. Increasingly, government seeking to dictate the choices of what you consume, the size of the cola beverages and soft drinks you're allowed to drink, and so on. All of your personal choices increasingly subject to being dictated by the state. But don't worry, because the medical care will be free afterwards. And then, of course, assaults on civil liberties, attacks on the ancient writ of habeas corpus, which guarantees the right to judicial review of arrests, the Department of Homeland Security, which is busy looking for more excuses to exercise more power and spend more money, increasing criminalization of behavior, increasing militarization of our police departments. I mean, you probably have been seeing in the news what's been happening lately. It is really simply a horror. The growth of hate crime laws that th punish thought and speech. It's going to take a lot of hard work to undo all of that. For example, once people get used to being asked for their papers regularly, it just comes to seem entirely normal. But in fact, for most of American history, for most people, you didn't have to produce your papers when it was demanded by a government agent. Most people didn't even notice it, but slowly we have adopted an internal passport system in the United States of America. You cannot travel on an airplane, certainly not a commercial plane, without showing government-issued ID. It can be a state ID or a federal one, but it has to be government-issued. Now on trains and also increasingly other forms of public conveyance. You may not board if you are not willing to show your ID. The idea is this is protecting us as if terrorists and scary people don't have IDs and wouldn't show them to get on the plane. This is simply irrational. <clears throat> and in 2004, it was legalized by the Supreme Court in a split decision, a terrible, catastrophic one in my opinion, which the Cato Institute argued strongly on the other side. It's a five to four decision that a man could be arrested, prosecuted for merely saying to a police officer, quote, I don't want to talk and refusing to show his ID papers, his government-issued ID to the police. So gone are the days when a peaceful person could go about his or her business without having to justify his or her activities or even one simple existence to the officers of the state. That America now is already in the past. And don't let me go on about the looming fiscal crisis of the state, the gigantic unfunded liabilities that the younger people in this room are going to be bearing. By the way, thanks a lot uh, for that. Uh, this is going to be a terrible bur burden to young people dealing with over $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities. But you can read all about that in the little book I put out last year called After the Welfare State. Notice the optimistic title, uh, which you'll get uh, here at the conference. And you can find the shocking numbers on Cato's website. Now fortunately, after all that bad news, the Obama administration is doing its absolute best to warn people of the dangers of big government and to promote libertarianism by doing what they do so well, which is to ignore the law. 
They do that with such skill. The IRS targeting and scrutiny of groups that had Tea Party or Patriot in their names, including what do your members read, a full list of your membership, synopses of all the materials read by the members, and so on, as a condition for getting their tax status. Interestingly enough, I wish I were uh, able to listen in on this, but the head of the IRS and the general counsel of the IRS had been spending a lot of time FaceTime with the President of the United States in the White House. As people have pointed out, this is unheard of. So what were they talking about? And I would very dearly like to know what was being discussed in those meetings. The general counsel of branches of government like this don't go and meet the President of the United States of America. He normally talks to the Attorney General and the Justice Department when he wants legal advice. So I would dearly love to know what was being discussed in those meetings. Something was going on that they'd rather we not know about. The lies covered in the cover-ups of total screw-ups from Fast and Furious to the Benghazi, the astonishing use of drones, as I like to point out when I'm on college campuses, our President Barack Obama has killed with drones more people than all previous Nobel Peace Prize winners combined. When you think about that, it's an astonishing record. Imagine the response if the Russian government were to start sending drones to blow up cafes in California or Arizona or New York because they said there was a Chechen opponent of the government having coffee there. And sorry about the other 36 people who got blown up along the way. Or if Castro were to send missiles into coffee houses in Miami saying, well, there are enemies of the state there conspiring against us. I don't think that would sit very well. Unsurprisingly, the U.S. government just recently announced a call for an international convention on the use of drones. You know what sparked that? The Ch Russian and Chinese government are now testing their own drones. And now they said, oh, maybe that's a problem. Maybe we should start to think about whether these attacks are legal and appropriate. And I must say, what a shameful moment just the other day when the U.S. government in its furious pursuit of Mr. Snowden, we'll set aside all the legal issues involved in that, uh, had to send a letter to President Putin by the Attorney General of the United States, which they didn't release publicly, but they were just forced to, promising that Mr. Snowden would not be executed or tortured if he were to be returned to the United States. And I have to say, I was ashamed that the US government is now in a position of having to make a promise like that to a two-bit thug like Vladimir Putin, that we would not torture someone upon bringing him back if they'd succeed to the United States. That was a moment for me of deep personal shame that we have reached this level. The threatened prosecution under the Espionage Act of 1917, by the way, almost all prosecutions under the Espionage Act of 1917 have been under this president, interestingly enough, of a Fox News reporter, the collection of emails of 20 reporters and editors, the monitoring of their text messages, the seizure of all the phone records of Verizon and other companies on the basis of a secret warrant issued by a secret court, a general warrant, and we're told, don't worry, it's law, secret law, but law. Now, what is happening very often is driven by a crisis mentality. And when we find ourselves in a crisis, it's so easy to abandon rational thought. We forget to ask questions. We simply assume, well, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Here's the syllogism of power in Washington. Something must be done. This is something, therefore, this must be done. That's a f it's logically valid in its own way, uh, but that's what drives us constantly. And people don't ask those hard questions. Will this work? Is this appropriate? Is this legally authorized? Politicians understand this dynamic very well. Former Congressman Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago, at the time President Obama's chief of staff, 
blurted it out when he said on television, quote, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. What I mean by that is an opportunity to do things that you did not think you could do before. Little moment of candor on television. What's well, our job to ask awkward questions and to risk being insulted, called unpatriotic and selfish and un-American, unfair, because we want to know that what is being proposed is really justified. Is it legal? Is it efficacious? Will it do the job? Is it efficient? Could it be done more cheaply? And is it compatible with our principles and our values? Because we don't want to abdicate our personal responsibilities as free persons and free citizens to merely give a free hand to politicians to do as they please with our businesses, our assets, our opinions, our educations, our families, and our lives. So that's why we're holding Cato University. We want to ask questions. We want to understand. We want to debate and discuss what is acceptable and what is not. And for that which is unacceptable, inappropriate, illegal, immoral, or unjust, to do something that, to stop what can be stopped, to roll back what has already been done, and to set in motion processes that will secure to ourselves and our posterity, our rights and our liberties and the blessings of peace and prosperity that are enjoyed by free men and women who are secure in the enjoyment of their rights. Now, the talk title that I gave for this was A Science of Liberty. Let me explain in a moment what I mean by that. That term has been used a number of times in the liberty movement for the last 200 years or so. It's gone, the liberty movement in different countries and different times has gone under many different names. It's been called Whigism, Republicanism, most prominently liberalism. And for various reasons in the United States, the term liberal came to be taken over by what in Europe would be called socialists or social democrats. Very different from liberalism. So we often in this country use the word libertarian. So we do the best we can. It's possibly not the most beautiful word in comparison to liberal. It does bring to mind a kind of genetic experiment crossing a librarian and a libertine. <laughs> it's a little scary when you envision it. Um, in most countries of the world, liberal still means what it used to mean. But in this country, we say libertarian, or classical liberal in more academic settings. If you just say liberal, it'll confuse most people. Now the central focus of that movement, obviously, is the idea of liberty. That Latin root word, liber, to be free, as our political value and goal. Doesn't mean it's the only goal in life, or the highest principle of all life, that would be a bit silly. But as a political principle, it is what is central and primary. And it's a concept that acquires concrete meaning when it's integrated with other concepts. It's a central principle or theme of a, of a new Cato Institute book, came out this year. I recommend it very highly. It was co-published by Cato and Cambridge University Press, which is a small upstart publishing house in England uh, that was honored to work with Cato in bringing out this book uh, by George H. Smith. It's called The System of Liberty. It's a very, very important and powerful book, which I recommend very highly. These ideas give meaning to the others. That's what we're going to be able to explore. For instance, what is or is not an infringement of liberty will depend on what you consider a person to be at liberty to do. What constitutes coercion is very substantially dependent on what you think rights people have. John Locke put it very neatly in his uh, second treatise. He said, the end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. That's a very important principle. Law is not the enemy of freedom. Law is about securing our freedom. Liberty depends on that to which you have a right, your property. But what is your property? Well, to discuss that, you have to turn to law, philosophical ideas of justice as articulated by lawyers, experts in jurisprudence and moral philosophy. Whether liberty leads to order or to chaos depends on your understanding of order and the roots of order. So you have to think about are all orders created and imposed or are some of them, or maybe most of them, evolved 
bottom-up, if you will. None of the basic ideas of libertarianism, in a sense, stand on their own. Each one draws meaning from those that are in the constellation of libertarian ideas. There's a science of liberty, and it draws on a number of disciplines, economics and history and law and psychology and sociology and so on. And the study of that is really the work of a lifetime, but we have a week for a very short crash course. We'll have a mix of legal theory, Cato's own Roger Pilon and Robert Levy. Uh, you'll have a chance to hear both of them. They're very, very smart. Robert Levy, I should say, is one of the smartest and most ethical people I've ever known in my life. And any time I ever found myself disagreeing with him, I said, what mistake have I made? I must have made some error to find myself disagreeing with Bob. We'll have social science and economic analysis, thanks to the outstanding economist Jeffrey Myron, teaches at a small college in Massachusetts, Harvard, and edits the Cato Papers on Public Policy. We'll have some applied public policy discussion applications to particular issues from Louise Bennett, who is a, a Cato Director of Financial Regulation Studies, and our president, John Allison, who joined Cato after a distinguished career in banking. We'll talk about foreign policy, thanks to two very interesting speakers. Doug Bondo, who was formerly special assistant to President Reagan, is now a senior fellow at Cato, and Wall Street writer Mary Anastasio O'Grady, and history. Robert McDonald from the United States Military Academy at West Point, and our own Dr. Jason Kuznicki, who's a research fellow here at Cato and the editor of our online mag debate magazine, discussion magazine, Cato Unbound. We'll have some political analysis from our Executive Vice President David Bowes, and from my humble self, talking about some historical and sociological backgrounds to the institutions of government. And we've got just less than a week to do all that. So, a little bit about this packed schedule. First, if you set your watches, you want to set it to the right time zone, and that's Switzerland. <laughs> okay, so, so not, uh, not Washington, D.C., but Switzerland. And we like to be very, very precise. It's my experience that if you begin on time and end on time, everyone is happier at the end of the, just the first few days. And people who come to us from cultures with different senses of time are always happy. They say, now I know to be there on time, and it'll end on time. So that means we will start tomorrow morning, as you see in your schedule here, at 9 o'clock. Does breakfast between 8 and 9 will be up here, and in the auditorium downstairs, 9 o'clock. And what that means is, at 9 a.m., Professor Myron's mouth will open and sounds will come out. Okay. So that we want to be there early. So I recommend being a little bit early. It won't be 9.07 or 9.12. 9 o'clock, it will begin. So try to be there 8.50. Gives you a chance to find your seat, gossip with your neighbors a little bit, scooch in, and be ready. We will then end at 10.15. So Professor Myron, after the discussion, 10.15, sound will stop. And I have snipers in the upper balconies <laughs> to make sure that that happens. Then you'll have 30 minutes to go out and do your Tai Chi exercises or whatever it is you want to do, have some snacks, some coffee, and then at 10.45, we will start again. And if we do that consistently, everyone will have a better time. I just guarantee it. Now, for the students here who are on scholarship, welcome to all of you. And I want to make a quick reminder. It was a competitive process, and the scholarship funds were donated by individuals who really did that work thing. That's when you go out and you are busy and produce value uh, for other people. And they could have spent it doing the fun thing if they'd wanted to, but they didn't. They dedicated it for this function. So we expect you to be at, at all of the sessions. Um, and given that, I remember I was once a college student, and it's hard to wake up in the morning. So <laughs> you have cell phones that I'm pretty sure have alarms on them. There's probably an alarm in the hotel, in your room. And there's a wake-up service. And your television has an alarm. Set all of them. <laughs> all of them. 
should be engaged. So you can overcome the fact of having been up late the night before arguing about the meaning of freedom, having a long, deep discussion like that of the two dyslexic philosophers who were up all night arguing about the existence of dog. <laughs> now, I did mention something about identity papers, so it may seem a little discordant. It's just a suggestion. It's not obligatory, but I do recommend wearing this. It makes life just, again, a little bit easier. You know the name of the person, might have forgotten it uh, from the day before. You can kind of take a peek when they're not looking and see the name again. And it just makes everyone more friendly. You'll meet more people as a consequence. Helps to break the ice. You won't be arrested if you don't wear it. I'll make a note, however. Uh, <laughs> but you'll find it a more pleasant experience. So here's a little tip. If you're staying in the hotel, this is what I always do. I walk into the room, the first thing that comes off, and I put it on the floor in front of the door. I don't put it on the nightstand. I will forget it if it's on the nightstand. Then, because I am old and forgetful, I take my door key and put that on the floor in front of the door with my name tag. When I leave, I pick them up on the way out. It's a little trick I worked out, which I've patented, by the way. Um, so that when you leave, you have it. If you have any problems or questions, the hotel staff is there at your service. My colleagues, especially Rachel and Ashley, are able to help you, anyone else. Uh, so don't hesitate if there's any problem to take care of it. We don't want people to wait for a heart attack or something like that. Um, and we're going to meet tomorrow morning. There'll be breakfast, and then 9 o'clock, we will start. Uh, with Jeffrey Myron. Now, a few quick things. After this, we'll have some libations. It's an interesting experiment in legalization. These beverages were illegal in the United States prior to 1933 and were then legalized at that point. So some of them will be available for consumption at the Finn and Porter bar at the Embassy Suites Hotel, just, just one block away. For the scholarship students here, Immediately following, as soon as we leave here, which will be in just a minute or two, in the auditorium, the grand F.A. Hayek Auditorium, my colleague Chip, Chip's here, will be discussing an orientation for you. So please do be there. As soon as this is over, we leave, go straight down to the auditorium. And the last thing, actually the penultimate thing, take all your belongings from this room. We're going to bring in a whole bunch of homeless people afterwards. And <laughs> They'll take your stuff. So if, if you don't take it with you, uh, you won't get it back. So take all of your stuff this evening. Now here's the last thing. Have a good time. Thank you. <laughs>